We are in Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. I invite you to turn there. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12. I've divided the chapter into two parts. Verses 1 to 13 we'll look at this morning, and verses 14 to 29 in the will of the Lord we'll look at next Lord's Day. That's the entire chapter, and the entire chapter is about endurance, enduring. Uh, You could say that this is part one of a sermon on endurance, and part two of the same chapter on endurance will be next week. You don't have to be a Christian very long to accept as fact that it takes endurance to run the race of the Christian life. I mean, we need endurance for seemingly steady temptations that we face, for seemingly constant trials, for seemingly nagging doubts we have. We need endurance for the mercilessness of COVID. We need endurance with what we could deem as being unanswered prayer. We need endurance. One way to outline Hebrews chapter 12 is to better endure three things. We, to better endure, we must have three things. Number one, the courage of the Son of God. I see that in verses one to four. We need the assurance of the love of God, verses five to 13. That's will comprise our sermon for today. And next week, God willing, to better endure, we must have the enablement of God's grace. And so today, we simply look at verses one to 13 on endurance, and we see together, to better endure, we have to have the courage of the Son of God, and we also have to have the assurance of the love of God. And we move into this now with some more specifics. The first point we're going to need to see is that for us to endure all the things that are around us in the Bahamas, all the things that are going on in our families, all the things that are going on in our parenting, all the things that are going on in the world, we're going to have to have the courage of the Son of God. The courage of the Son of God. And I just want to say that none of us really understands how fast the need for endurance emerges in our Christian lives. The need for endurance can and does sneak up on us fast. Let me give you an example of this, an amazing example of how fast a certain pastor had to rally his strength in the Spirit of God and the Word of God to endure something he never would have imagined. In October of 2016, an American pastor in Turkey endured with God's help. Pastor Andrew Brunson was arrested on phony charges in Turkey. He was charged with aiding terrorism. Pastor Brunson was ripped from his wife and from his small church family of 25 believers, and he was jailed in Turkey. The American government increased tariffs on Turkish imports to try to push the government to drop these bogus charges on Pastor Brunson. He went into a depression there in solitary confinement for two years in the Turkish prison. He had no contact with anyone except with his jailers. In 2018, two years after being arrested and put in jail, after two years of solitary confinement being shuttled between prisons, Pastor Brunson was released and returned to his wife in America. In those two years in prison, Pastor Brunson had to endure in his faith in God. He needed to endure. And what we all face individually causes us this morning, 
to need to endure as well. And one huge help for us to endure is seeing and copying the courage of the Son of God. I want to read verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews 12 and would ask you to turn in your Bibles to that passage this morning. Hebrews 12, 1 to 4, familiar verses. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, for consider him who has endured, there it is again, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. I want us to look at two phrases that appear in this short reading from the first four verses. The first key phrase I want to focus on with you is for the joy set before him. See it there in verse 2? For the joy set before him. The second phrase I want us to look at in verse 4, resisted to the point of shedding blood. That's in verse 4. So if you were to ask this morning, how much courage did the Son of God have? I would answer, enough courage to see the cross as the joy, to see the cross as the joy. How in the world could that be? How in the world could Jesus see his cross as being the joy? Verse two again, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, watch it, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. How in the world could our courageous Savior contemplate his own cross and count it to be the joy? Please come close to me figuratively. Listen. Jesus Christ could call the cross the joy because he knew of an Old Testament promise that was for him uniquely to claim. And the promise is in Psalm 16, verses 8 through 10. This was the promise on the Savior's mind that counted the cross that he was to face as the joy. Ready? This was an Old Testament promise that God the Father made to God the Son that Jesus clung to in order to see the cross as the joy. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. Watch the promise. For thou wilt not abandon my soul to Sheol. Sheol is the Hebrew term for the grave. For thou wilt not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither wilt thou allow thy Holy One, that's Christ, to undergo decay. The Lord Jesus Christ, of course, knew the Old Testament beautifully well. 
And he understood that the promise of Psalm 16, verses 8 to 10, was an assurance for him as the Messiah who would be crucified that he would not stay dead, that he would be bodily resurrected to life, that his body would not undergo decay. And because he knew that promise of God, which was directed specifically to him, he could view the cross as the joy. The cross was the joy which was set before Jesus because he was confidently, courageously sure that he would be resurrected from the dead. Now listen, we copy Jesus' courage by claiming the promises of God which are for us in Scripture. There are promises in the Bible that are for Israel, There are promises for God that are for us, the church. When we understand the promises of Scripture that are for us, the church, and we claim those promises, we can know the courage to face those things that are hard for us to endure now. We need to know and claim the promises that are made for us as members of the church age. Now, this may be easier than you think. To claim the promises that are specifically for the church in Scripture is probably easier than you might think. We live in the day of being online, don't we? We can Google promises of Scripture for the church, and a host of verses will come up on our computer screens or devices. We can search the promises of Scripture for topics with Google. God's promises for fear... God's promises for humility, God's promises for guidance, God's promises for finances. You could pick any topic, search it online, and the verses would come right up for you. And you can sort out which promises of those are made for Israel and which promises of those are made for the church. We can access the promises of God that are for the church quite easily. So we ought to do that because we'll be copying Jesus Christ's courage if we claim the promises of God that are for us, even as Jesus Christ could call the cross the joy when he claimed the promises that were for him in the Old Testament. Psalm 16, 8 to 10, to be specific. And so let's, that's considering the phrase for the joy set before him. Let's go to the second phrase I want us to focus in on. Resisted to the point of shedding blood. Do you see that there in verse 4 again? You, first readers of Hebrews, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. The idea here is to argue from the greater to the lesser, to make a point, to persuade arguing from the greater to the lesser. So here's how it works. Given that Jesus Christ strove against sin to the point of his blood being spilled, you and I should strive against sin to the point of following Christ's example of courage so that we will endure what we need to endure, not getting weary and not losing heart. You remember WWJD, what would Jesus do? That was helpful. There were bracelets and jewelry made, WWJD. That was, that was fine. I want to submit to you another abbreviation this morning. Not WWJD, but JDF. Jesus did first. J 
D, F. Because Jesus did first, courageously endured the shedding of his blood to strive against our sin, we should strive against sin ourselves to the point of following Christ's courageous example and therefore enduring and not quitting. Now, verses 1 to 4 can be looked at in another different way, and they could be seen as pointing us to look at three different persons. Okay, you ready? In the first place, we are to look at the Old Testament winners. Winners by God's definition in the Old Testament. I see that in verse 2a in our passage. And what we see when we look at the Old Testament winners is that it can be done. It can be done that you can endure because they did. The second person to look at, according to 1 verse b, is to look at yourself. As you run the race and want to endure, look at yourself. And what we see there is you won't help yourself to do it, enough to do it. We need the Holy Spirit. The third person to look at, of course, is the Lord Jesus himself, verses 2 to 4. And what I'm suggesting as you look at Jesus as he run the race to the cross, that we would do the JDF summary. Jesus did first. Jesus did first. Let's look at these three persons to look at quickly. First, look at Old Testament winners. The Old Testament winners we're to look to are found in verse 1, and they're called so great a cloud of witnesses. The Old Testament winners that were listed for us in chapter 11, let me just say, I do not understand those Old Testament winners who are listed in chapter 11 as being cheerleaders for my Christian life. They are not cheerleaders of my Christian life. They are inspiring examples for my Christian life. You know, people often ask me, do you think a loved one, a Christian who passed into heaven, knows what's going on on earth? No, I don't think that. Just like I don't think that verse 1, so great a cloud of witnesses, is cheerleaders from the Old Testament saints. Why do I say that? Because Scripture clearly says there are no tears in heaven. And frankly... Sometimes, my grandparents, who are with Jesus Christ in glory, if they were aware of some of the choices that I have made since they went to heaven, they might shed some tears. I'm not proud of that. So I do not believe their scriptures teach that a loved one who's gone to heaven is aware of what's going on in our lives here on earth, because there are no tears in heaven, and often, so often, we could disappoint And so to look at these Old Testament winners, we understand they're not cheerleaders for our running of the race, but they are inspirations to us for running the race. So the first way to look is to the Old Testament winners. The second way to look is to look at yourself. As a racer, look at yourself. You are a race runner according to the second part of verse 1. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us watch. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You know what my biggest problem in running this race that's set before me is? Me. Not Satan. Not anybody I know. My biggest problem to run the race with endurance that's set before me is me. My flesh. 
my decisions, my thinking, my speech, my actions that aren't controlled by the Holy Spirit, my flesh. My biggest problem to run the race with endurance is me. And I would submit to you who know Christ as Savior, the biggest problem that each of you have to run your races with endurance is you. Your flesh will never help you to run this race. My flesh will never help me to run this race. So if we run the race in the flesh, then we are not going to be successful to endure. But the Holy Spirit, thank God, can override our flesh. And in that regard, when the Holy Spirit overrides our flesh as race runners, we in Holy Spirit strength can cast off besetting sin that tangles us up, encumbers our running of the race. And so we're to look three places. We've seen we're to look to the Old Testament winners to see that it can be done. We're to look at ourselves to show that we ourselves will not help ourselves to do it. And third, we are, of course, to look to Jesus because he finished his race well, very well. So we ought to be fixing our eyes on Jesus as we run the race. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. When you talk to your teenager who's on his device and you ask him to do a chore and he doesn't look up, he's fixing his eyes on his device. When you have to say it another time, then He's fixing his eyes on the device and may give you an occasional glance. But you know what? For us to run our race with endurance, we have to fix our eyes on Jesus, not giving Jesus an occasional glance. That won't work. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus, not to have periodic glances toward him at communion or when we're in a pickle. That expression of the Bahamas, being in a pickle, being in trouble. And so the first truth today when it comes to endurance is consider the courage of the Son of God. The second and final truth for today, to endure better, have the assurance of the love of God. The assurance of the love of God. It's a key concept in verses 5 to 13 of discipline or disciplining or spanking, we might say. And really the idea in the original language here is child rearing, child instructing, child shaping. And so because we can easily doubt our Heavenly Father's love for us in the midst of him spanking us, there are three proofs given by God to show us that when God spanks us, at the same time, he loves us. Proof number one, that God loves us even when spanking us, is Scripture, verses 5 and 6. You have not forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Verse 6, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. You know, that is a quote from the Old Testament book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 11 to 12. And so this is saying that Scripture is the foundation for righteous disciplining. When God spanks you, and he may, or he has, when he spanks you, it's because he's in alignment with the scriptures he has revealed to us. And our heavenly father, watch now, listen. Our heavenly father chooses to spank us, and when he does, his chastening hand is always controlled by his loving heart. Can I say that again? 
When God's figurative hand spanks you when you need a spanking, his hand and what he does to you in chastening or punishing or training is always in line with his loving heart for you. Humanly speaking, no earthly parent should spank their child when the parent is angry, but see it as a love measure of correction. And so the second proof that God's spanking and loving can be at the same time is personal experience, verses 7 to 11. For it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Unfortunately, today we would say a lot. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we have earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father, capital F, of spirits and live? For they, this is the earthly parent, for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he, God the Father, disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So at the human level, disciplining one's child, spanking one's child, is something that only the parents or guardians of that child are supposed to do. I don't spank your children, and you certainly don't spank my children. It's a sign of Uh, Being in God's family, a personal experience of being in God's family, when God the Father loves us enough that when we need it, he actually spanks us to show us that we are legitimate children of his. And so the Father spanks us to prove his love for us. The third proof that God spanking us is not contrary to him loving us is the proof that there are some blessed results when God spanks us. Some results come when God lovingly says, that's enough, I'm going to spank you so you remember not to do it again. You know, businessmen and women, they weigh in their businesses a cost-benefit analysis. They measure the costs of a certain action and the benefits of a certain action, and good business people only do things that have greater benefits than costs. There is a cost-benefit aspect to God spanking us. It costs us. What does it cost us when God has to spank us? It costs us some things that we once held dear, like easy living or comfort or rationalized sin or secret rebellions against God. That's what it costs us when God has to spank us. But what happens when God spanks us is that the benefits that come out of that spanking are incredible. Listen to them. In verses 9 to 13, they're all listed. The benefits of being spanked by our Heavenly Father, ready? Divine spankings can ward off death, that's verse 9. They can reinforce abundant life, that's verse 9. They can be quickly effective, that's verse 10. Divine spankings can bring about good, verse 11. And they can bring about holiness, verse 11. And they train us, verse 11. And they foster peaceable righteousness, verse 11. And they strengthen us. And divine spankings can correct and heal us, verse 13. That's a lot of benefits. That's why he loves us enough to spank us when we need a spanking. It was Frederick Douglass who said that it's easier to build strong children 
than to repair broken men. That's true. And so here we are at the end of part one of this two-part series on endurance in Hebrews 12. So in closing, let me point out that this is real practical. This is real personal. Let me point out to you that every day, plenty of persons are counting on you to endure for Christ. They are counting on you not to quit, not to grow weary or to lose heart. They are counting on you to pursue holiness and Christ-likeness. They're counting on you. They're counting on you not to disgrace yourself by sin and not to disgrace your Savior whom you name with hidden sin that gets exposed. Who is counting on you for such endurance in holiness and Christ-likeness? Who, you say, is counting on me to endure in the Christian race? I'll tell you, your spouse, your children, your grandchildren, your parents, your grandparents, your church family, your friends, your city, your country, and many others. I was once in a Moody Pastors Conference in Chicago, and then President Dr. Michael Easley was preaching on purity in the ministry, running the race of purity with endurance as leaders, Christian leaders. And I'll never forget what Dr. Easley did. He pulled a piece of paper out of his Bible, and he said, I have a list in my Bible that I regularly look at of all the persons who would absolutely be devastated if I fell into moral failure and sexual sin. And then he said, so far there are 62 names on my list, but I am adding names to the list constantly. You know, it's not just pastors who are called to run the race of the Christian life with endurance with respect to holiness and Christ-likeness. It's all of you. Every Christian is called to run the Christian race with endurance and integrity and holiness. That's you. That's me. That's us. And so, in light of that, we are to copy the courage of the Son of God. And we are to be assured of the love of God when God spanks us when it is necessary. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to put a holy fear into us, a deep reverential fear for you that's deep enough that we would choose endurance every time that we are tempted to choose quitting or compromising or concealing. Father, show us how to look at the Old Testament winners how to look at our hearts, and how to look at the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want to live Christian lives that deserve a spanking from you. So help us not to need a spanking. We pray this in the name of the one who endured so much for us, the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.